The Athletic. Golazzo is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favorite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports. Today on Golazzo, Ronaldo, R9, a player who redefined the game, who tore up leagues and ligaments and who, across six seasons at Inter, experienced everything the sport could throw at him, except perhaps spot kicks against Juventus. All phenomenal in this Golazzo. Golazzo! Hello there, thank you for joining us for another edition of our retro look at the golden age of Calcio. Here with us, it is a classic lineup. James Horncastle, hello. Hello. And ESPN senior football writer, Gabriele Marcotti. Hello. Hello to you. On the table today, Ronaldo Luis Nazario de Lima. Crazy, no, that there's a conversation that you need to have when you mention Ronaldo. Not that one, not that one, this one. Like, if, say, you were discussing Pele and you'd have to say, no, not that Pele. I don't know, Abdi Pele, <laughs> but the Brazilian Pele. Isn't that crazy? You have to talk in that terms about or phenomenal. Well, a lot of other people are far less charitable than you are, James, in, in how they go about uh, identifying uh, or distinguishing one Ronaldo from another, um, which uh, you know, I just personally don't really get. Uh, for me, you know, I, I grew up when I first uh, came to watch football, you know, I sort of idolised Roberto Baggio. Baggio was in the middle of his career. And then the next guy who was emerging as the, the preeminent kind of superstar of that, that era was, was, was definitely Ronaldo. And you know, I don't think I'm a, uh, any different to anyone else in that regard. I mean, I remember when he came back to, to Italy from Real Madrid uh, to play for Milan in that one. We'll get to that quite controversial kind of uh, game. Zlatan being stood across from him in an intershirt, unable to take his eyes off Ronaldo because Ronaldo was the player that he wanted to be when he was growing up in, in what, Rosengard in Malmo. So, yeah, made people dream. I, I, I think, you know, there obviously are other examples. My favorite example is, um, I believe he was Inter's first Ballon d'Or winner, um, Luis Suarez. <laughs> And of course, then along years later comes another guy named Luis Suarez, who also plays for Barcelona. And, you know, the original Luis Suarez was perhaps a, a less controversial figure. But but these things happen. And besides, this is what gets me. So, you know how like the English vocabulary has fewer words and fewer terms than other countries? So inevitably, you start repeating yourself. Didn't you guys have, have two Gary Stevens in the same England team? So maybe it shouldn't re- surprise you so much, right, that there's... That, 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 you know, it I, might I'm happen. Not, I'm not surprised. I'm just aware of the fact that for younger listeners, their perception of Ronaldo might be of him as being the, the kind of funny old 78 vinyl version of Ronaldo, the, the fat Ronaldo, whatever you want to call him. For those youngsters, Gab, who was Orphanomino? Who do we mean when we talk about Ronaldo for someone who never saw him play? I think we mean the guy who... I know we'll get to his career and to his injuries, but the guy that looked like he would revolutionize the game. You know, we talk about, it's, it's generational, right? So obviously old timers will go on about the Estefano, but then, you know, you have Pele as the undisputed. And then it goes to Diego Armando Maradona. 
And then all of a sudden, Ronaldo comes along, and there's a reason he was known as O Phenomeno, because he was so unlike everybody before him, and it legitimately looked like um, he might be able to go and you know, be spoken of in the same breath as, as Pelé and Maradona. And I think that is part of what made him stick out. And they were so cognizant um, of this. Uh, I, I remember the, um, the 1994 World Cup, um, you know, he was called up to that Brazil team and it wasn't lost on everybody that, you know, he was in a similar situation to Pelé in 1958. And, you know, that Brazil team already had another guy on the team, speaking of many guys in Brazil named Ronaldo. Of course, Brazil and Portuguese, that is the ultimate language where names repeat themselves very, very quickly. But they had a center back named Ronaldo who... They decided to call Ronaldão, which I think means big Ronaldo. You're better with the pronunciation than I am. And he became R. Lima on the back of his shirt. And he didn't actually play a minute in that in that World Cup, as I recall. Mm-hmm. But you're already in the sense that, you know, this is something special. And at that point, I think he just he just moved to Europe. He'd moved to, to PSV Eindhoven. Um, but the, the other neat thing about him, and his past, and I had the privilege. Um, I mean, it happened to me a few years ago when, when I was in Brazil for the for the Confederations Cup. When you drive on on the motorway, sort of from Flamengo to the general direction of of the airport, you pass this, and, and it's still in a very very urban situation. You pass this kind of breeze block concrete mini stadium. And there's a sign if you're stuck in traffic that you've got the time to read, and it said, and it says "Aqui nasceu fenomeno," and you can laugh at my accent later. But this is this is where the phenomeno was born, and so I was I was struck by it. So obviously I, I went around and, and and I and I went down to see what was there, and and that's where I found this club called São Cristóvão, which is the club from which he moved to Europe, which is a small club in Rio. I think totally overshadowed by the fact there's like 20 clubs bigger than São Cristóvão in Rio. But the other fun thing that I learned that day is that Ronaldo probably isn't even, or old-timers will tell you, he's not even Sao Cristóvão's greatest ever center forward because the man who spent a big chunk of his career at Sao Cristóvão is this mythical figure named Arthur Friedenreich who supposedly had the all-time goal-scoring record before Pelé and stuff like that. So I, I go to all Friedenreich, this... Friedenreich, though, because there's another Arthur Friedenreich and, right. and, and another one. Friedenreich. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But right. but yeah, no. I mean, look, okay. this is where the guy comes from, and he goes to he he, he goes to, to to PSV where he replaces right. another uh, prolific Brazilian striker named oh, Romario, right. scores a ton of goals, and then goes to Barcelona, scores a goal of the century contender, and and he's on his way. Well, that was some traffic jam you were stuck in in Rio uh, that day, Gab. Uh, Ronaldo, any this Ronaldo? unlike anything we'd seen before, but in many ways a mix of some of the best bits, the estro, the geniality, the speed with the ball of, of Messi, who would come later, physicality of Adriano, trickery of Honoljinho, perhaps, the diet of Cassano, <laughs> the, the knees of Gaza, put together into an extraordinary cocktail. All righty. Many people, when they look at Ronaldo's career, they say it could have been so much more if it hadn't been for the injuries. Equally... We should salute him because it could have been so much less. His ability to come back from the double whammy of those exploding knees, make the move to Spain, conquer a World Cup, is all pretty amazing for someone who we really thought 
at one point at the turn of the, the millennium would never play again. We're going to really focus, though, in this Golazzo about the six seasons of the greatest player in the world, in the greatest league in the world, Ronaldo at Inter, 97 to 2002. Ronaldo, gol, qué golazo acaba de hacer Ronaldo. Ronaldo, gol. Ronaldo, gol. 31st of August 1997, and there's a festive atmosphere in Milan, the hottest property in world football, making his debut with Inter. Ronaldo had had one season at Barcelona, in which, as a teenager, he had torn up La Liga. Uh, making Compostela look like compost heap along the way and winning the Pichichi, <laughs> generally stunning the world. As Real Madrid legend Jorge Valdano commented, he is not a man, he is a herd. Gap, how did Massimo Moratti's Inter manage to prize him away from Catalonia? So the short answer is at the time, and I think still to this day, um, clubs had release clauses and um, Spanish clubs in particular. And obviously this is a, a well-worn path that, you know, Figo, Luis Figo would, would go down uh, years later, moving to Real Madrid famously. But there was, a whole, there was a whole background to this as well. And it was to do with his agents. There was a guy named something Martins, was it? And Yeah, Alexandre Martins, yeah. So a man uh, who, I mean, for, We've spoken of before. Um, uh, it's a guy named Giovanni Branchini, who is, for a long time, he was a dean of, of Italian football agents. His his dad was probably Italy's greatest boxing promoter and boxing agent. Um, the Don I, King of, of yeah, the Don <laughs> King of the Italian boxing scene. I mean, boxing is pretty huge in Italy. We have a really big boxing tradition. It's Probably, would you say, James, the second or third most followed individual sport in Italy? After cycling and, I mean, it depends what area you're talking about. But, yeah. Uh, cycling, basketball. And well, the basketball is not really an individual sport, depending sure. who's playing. Yeah. But it's, it's a, it is a really big deal. There is a big boxing scene in Italy, uh, especially in, in that era. Um, and... Um, he approached these guys and, you know, he, he did, he operated the way, I think, he's one of those deals that operated, I think, in many ways, the way deals work today, but back then a little bit less so in the sense that he spoke to, to Moratti, the, the Inter president who was on his doorstep and said, hey, look, this is how much Ronaldo costs. All you got to do is then, you know, figure out how much you want to pay him and I can get him for you. You don't even have to negotiate with Barcelona. It's that easy. And Moratti says, really? And then he goes and he finds uh, Alexander Martins. The other guy's name was, was uh, Pita, wasn't it? And these guys were pretty random Brazilian dudes. Like, they weren't, I don't, as far as I know, like, you know, they kind of disappeared after him. And he said, hey, um, Ronaldo making a ton of money at Barcelona, but he could do much better at Inter. And also Serie A at the time was ascendant. Um, over Barcelona, this was the this was kind of the, the the Barcelona transition, the beginning of the Barcelona transition period, the end of the the, the Cruyff era, and um, the argument is that is part of what sold them. I think what sold them on it was a chance to go and make a lot more money, a lot more money um, at Inter, and so after just one year in which he dominated La Liga, 
um, they went in and, and Barcelona were furious, but there was nothing they could do. But mm-hmm. I like the, I like that story about sort of the bank calling up Barcelona and said, "We've just had a, a payment on, on your account for so many million. It would be billion lira or something." And the president's like, "Ah, what's that for them?" Oh no, no! It's for, it's for Ronaldo. Don't take the payment. Don't take the payment. And they ended up having to go to FIFA, didn't they? Basically, and they, they, I think they argued that the clause was only valid within La Liga for Spanish clubs. Yeah. And in the end, Inter won the case, and Ronaldo's move was completed—a world record move. What just uh, was it? Six months or eighteen months? I can't remember. After Moratti bought Inter, and Moratti's, I think, first transfer window he'd signed. Uh, the governor, Paul Ince, uh, Javier Zanetti, some other Brazilian called Caio. Um, and, uh, and then this, this was his kind of real statement of intent. I don't think we can mention the Zanetti window without mentioning the other Argentine who came, Sebastian Rambert, the, 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 the avioncito, the little airplane. But more importantly, the other guy who arrived was a Brazilian left back named Roberto Carlos, who mm. came to Italy, played really, really well, mm. ran into a manager who I know, he's your mate, so he's explained it a million times, James, decided he wasn't going to be any good for Italian football, too difficult. And so after a year, they sent this man away. Uh, that man, of course, is Roberto Carlos, and the upshot is that um, over the next 10 years, Inter had about 70 left-backs, including the legendary Cintofanti. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a subject for another day. Although you're delighted to know that that manager will be making an appearance in this show, Gab. Uh, anyway, um, so he I arrives... I you'll ask him about it for the 10 millionth time. In, he arrives in summer 1997. The debut, as we've discussed in other Golazos, particularly the one about Rakoba, didn't go entirely as planned. But Inter did get the win. They had a brilliant start to the season with Ronaldo on board. And generally speaking... That season, for all the problems that came after, that season was absolute pure gold. Yeah, no, absolutely. He lived up to the billing. It's quite funny after that uh, that debut. Um, yeah, knee jerk reaction was, oh, is he really that good? Or it was right. We need to sack Gigi Simone because Simone's just not good enough. Um, and we'll get to what happened with him uh, maybe a little bit later. But you know, he did things that um, people had never seen before. I don't think have seen since. I mean, those those incredible clips of of Ronaldo. Uh, pretty much hemmed in on the sidelines and just dancing with the ball, nutmegging one defender, two defenders and getting away. Um, I mean, we just mentioned Roberto Carlos. One thing that I'd forgotten about um, was just how good Ronaldo was at free kicks. You look at the free kicks he scored in this first season. There's one against uh, Palmer with Gigi Buffon in goal. Buffon, uh, I mean, his explosive athletic peak could never get anywhere near it. I mean... Just incredible. And I think the, at the beginning of that season, they had Bam Bam Zamorano. They had uh, Yuri Jorkaev, Maurizio Gans. Gans did not um, take the decision to sign Ronaldo very well. He was like complaining, look, we've got enough strikers here. They had um, Kanu as well. Kanu. They had Moriero. Mm. And um, in the end, I think what, what Gigi Simoni did was, um, you know, he had Ronaldo up front, uh, with Moriero, but Moriero would kind of play out wide on the right. It's where he'd go and play for Italy in the World Cup in 98. Um, Joel would play off him, and more often than not, you'd have Ronaldo picking up the ball on the halfway line, driving at the def- defences, 
and they play a quick one-two with uh, with Jokaev or Diego Simeone, and he was through, and no one could stop him, and he scored. And um, he just seemed to always get to the ball first, always get to the ball ahead of the goalkeeper. Um, played at a speed and with speed and skill that I think it's only Messi really comes close to. I think um, or, or beats. I, I think. I mean, I think James photographs him perfectly there. What, what I would add too is. That dancing in tight spaces, which you described before, especially, you know, we've all seen the same clips, right? By the touchline, whatever. Yeah, we've seen Messi do it, or we've seen Baggio do it. We've seen other little teeny guys do it. We don't normally see a guy who is six foot one do it, six foot one and with muscles do it. We've seen bigger, skillful people out there, but then they tend not also to be so explosive and fast because. There's things once he gets into the into the open field and he just knocks the ball five yards forward, there's just no way anybody anybody's catching him or getting to the ball first. And you just knew that. And so you had to bring him down and then get yourself sent off or or, or whatever. And and it was that which is something that we'd never really seen before. And that combination of of size, strength, and ability in tight spaces, and I know that the trolls are gonna be out again. There was a moment in his career when the other Ronaldo had it, you know, when he was still super quick and had become stronger. But I think never with with the inventiveness of of this Ronaldo. I've seen studies using um, FIFA twenty one <laughs> that show that show pretty much con- conclusively that uh, original Ronaldo outranks Cristiano with all due respect in pretty much every category uh, heading and jumping uh, is where Chris uh, scores more okay. points Ronaldo that. that year that first glorious season with the Nerazzurri 25 goals in the league and remember this is peak Serie A in terms of defensive skills 34 goals in 47 official games absolutely remarkable Jokaev commenting after when we were training we were practically stopped to watch him it was extraordinary they didn't lose a game into till the 21st of December. For all his brilliance, though, and for all the, the richness of that squad, they only finished second, Gab. Five points back from Juventus. How? Remind me, how did they not win the league? 97-98, <laughs> yeah. the Stagione dei Villani, the season of poisons. I don't know, what version do you want me to give you? Do you want me to give you the Juve version or the Inter version? So the 26th of April, 1998, and Ronaldo's at the heart of this. Yeah, Mark, Inter. he runs into, uh, he either runs into Mark Giuliano, who was um, very sort of harmlessly hanging out uh, at the edge of the box or just inside the box. Right. So or, just to give this context for, for the, the one person on the planet who's not aware of this story, Inter are one point behind Juve and questing after the title that's eluded them for so long. There are four games to remaining. Inter have the trip to Turin to take on Juve. If they win, they're going to be in the driving seat. Juve take the lead, but in the 69th minute, a lovely little, I think it's a one-two with Jorge F, sees Ronaldo free in the box. And as he goes to get the ball... Juliano, there's no question, Juliano runs straight into him. I've seen well, that. The, 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 I spoke to Juliano about this. Okay. Um, he called, wait, 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 let me guess, James. He called it what the euphemism. It, it was just a coming together, as you love to say in this country, right? 
He said, I stopped myself so I wouldn't commit a foul. He oh, kept what? running and bumped into me. The ref, had the, the ref had the decision to make and he chose not to give a penalty. Yeah, how strange. <laughs> anyway, what he does do, though, is give a penalty about 60 seconds later at the other end of the field, much to uh, the Inter player's displeasure. Uh, he, he doesn't blow for this. Inter are protesting. Juve bombed down the other end of the field and win a penalty, which they don't score, but... You know, that that's not the point. This was the incident. And I, I've been back and watched. I'm sure everybody has. And, and Ceccarini says, well, no, uh, there was no foul to give. But Juliano clearly runs into it. Anyway, never Juliano, by the way, um, when I spoke to him, he now lives in Milan. And for ah. a long time, uh, he couldn't walk the street without basically someone, an Inter fan coming up to him and always sort of remonstrating. And uh, I remember he was on his motorino when I called him and he said, look, I, I need to park up, so so um, let me do that and then we can chat. And then I called him and his phone was engaged and he said, oh, it was another journalist, however many years later, 22 years later, who was asking him about this exact incident. He says, there isn't a day that goes by without his phone ringing wow. about to, to, give, to give a comment about this and he's... I wouldn't say he's fed up of just being remembered for it. He was like, I played in Champions League finals. I won league titles. I played on one of the best teams of all time in, mm. a, a, in, in the best league in the world. And this is the but only foul, thing that Ronaldo. people... <laughs> but this, yeah. is, this, is a, this is a good point about Ronaldo. I mean, and we'll get to the other bits, but you remember, Gab was talking about his physicality, his size, his stature. And that's one thing that Chino Recobra also says. You know, this, that was the thing that was kind of astonishing about him. But you remember the kind of impact with Ronaldo, you know, you, the impact with Juliano, you, you will get to the injuries. Those are injuries at high speed. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's in some respects, it's a miracle that he, he didn't get injured in this, in this yeah. one, because it must've been like running into a wall when he was running that fast into Juliano. Right. Well, or, or indeed vice versa. <laughs> um, the referee Ceccarini saying, I told Pagliuca it would have been a charging foul in basketball. Actually, I probably should have given a free kick for Juventus. Oh, shut up. Anyway, still the good news is after they'd had the fights in Parliament and all the other Veleni, as you say, that followed that, and of course Juve went on to win the title, Inter kind of lost the plot in the next couple of games, their season did at least finish on a high uh, with the UEFA Cup final in Paris against Lazio. James, this is one of your favourite games of football ever, I think. I think this is one of the most iconic moments in 90s football, um, part because of that that jersey that uh, that Inter had at the time, um, and uh, and also the the stepovers in slow mo. Um, I think this goes back to something that again Gab was saying about the the 1994 World Cup. That Brazil team that won uh, the World Cup then was negative. I thought it was really dull to watch. Yes, they had Romario and Babetta doing their kind of uh, cradling baby celebration and that sort of thing, but they. they I wouldn't say they were anti-Brazil, but they clearly learned from basically 82, which is like good football will only get you so far, you have to be cynical. Ronaldo felt to me uh, like he was a kind of exactly what Brazilian football should be. Um, and in this moment where he does the, what, three or four stepovers that completely bamboozle Luca Marchegiani, it, it encapsulates everything that he was about and everything that I think kind of Brazilian football is about as well. Javier Zanetti's goal in this game is, is, is often forgotten about. Fantastic goal. An amazing goal. It encapsulated what Inter, what Inter could be. 
it certainly didn't take away the pain from what happened uh, before uh, in in that season, and you know, and, and not just Ciccarini and Giuliano Ronaldo, but but, but De Santis and Daniel Di Tommaso and the rest of the carnival of freaks and Luciano Maggi. <laughs> that Italian football dealt with uh, back then. And of course, back then, nobody had cell phones or very few people did. So they weren't as good as wiretapping everybody and their brother. But, you know, they sorted that out a few years later. But um, I, I think that contributed to Inter kind of doubling down and saying, we can put on a performance um, like this. We can be even stronger in the very Italian way that you think about the system being against you. Um, I think it helped persuade Moratti to go out and blow the bank again on Christian Vieri. And and I think obviously it made what happened afterwards, which we're about to get to about with Ronaldo and his injuries, um, you know, it, it, it perhaps puts it into a certain context where you wonder with all that, if he hadn't gotten hurt, what might have been. Mm, all the more poignant. All right, well, it was to be the first of two massive days in Paris for Ronaldo that summer, because come June, he was back in France with the Celestial. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Okay, so France 1998, the World Cup, and James, as you say, the rebirth of Jogo Bonito and all that stuff, and Brazil coming to tear it up, and this kid who'd been the non-playing squad member in 94, he was at the heart of it all, Ronaldo. And he continued his Serie A form as the tournament got underway. Four goals and three assists taken through to, to the final with France. There's a great clip of Desailly and Lillian Thuram uh, at uh, Clefontaine, no, the, the training ground, talking about how they're going to stop Ronaldo and how to deal with his incredible shimmies and step-overs. <laughs> And Amy Jacquet wanders up and goes, well, he always goes this way, that way. He always goes to the right. And to say in Taram, just look at him like, friend, you have no idea. Uh, you look down and the ball is gone. It is magic. And they appear genuinely dumbfounded by the ability. And that seemed to be what we were set for for the final. But Gab, uh, fate had other ideas. Yeah, I, I was there that day at the Stade de France and there had been rumors that, that he'd been unwell in the final. There, there'd been suggestions about skullduggery and this is even on, on the day of. And then 
sort of maybe late morning, we get the word that, that he's going to play and he's going to start. And then about an hour and a half or two hours before kickoff, when they hand out the team sheets, and I still have the team sheet here somewhere, um, he's not in the 11. O Animal Edgemundo is starting, who I think hadn't featured at all or certainly hadn't started at all in the tournament to that point. So all of a sudden, it's like, oh my God, what's going on with Ronaldo? And then lo and behold, when the teams come out, oh no, hey, that was a mistake. Ronaldo, Ronaldo's playing. Now, he played, he was unfit. It showed he wasn't good. Some guy named Zidane scored two headers and, 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 and that was that. They lost 3-0. It was such a blow back in Brazil and was such a question about the mystery of Ronaldo and there were suggestions that, that, that Nike had prevailed upon him to have him play if he wasn't fit. There were suggestions, well, all sorts of conspiracy theories um, that they had a, a, some kind of sort of parliamentary inquiry as to what happened. And there's a strange character I know named Ricardo Setion who was uh, FIFA's press attaché with the Brazilian national team. And in the end, in the official, like when the parliamentary inquiry was over in the court documents, um, the way he tells the story, only three people know the truth of what really happened. One of them being the Brazilian team doctor, one of them being this guy named Rodrigo Paiva, who was sort of Ronaldo's friend stroke spokesman for, for many years and who'd gotten a job with the Brazil team. And the third was this man, Ricardo Setion. And to this day, I think it remains a bit of a mystery. Different versions have come out, um, but I still don't know which one to believe. And maybe it's something as innocent as just, you know, he had a virus. I don't know. Roberto Carlos, who I think was his roommate in the, in the, in the kind of Brazil camp, says that he had convulsions. Until Hodgson sent him away or something. <laughs> anyway, he talks about, yeah, Ronaldo essentially having convulsions. And, and it's curious, having recently watched the, the Pelé film where he, as a much older man, is on, his, on the bus to the, the 1970 World Cup final and just gets overcome by the pressure of it all, by the importance of what's about to happen and kind of has this not a breakdown by any means, but this kind of emotional, incredibly emotional moment where he just can't stop crying uncontrollably on his way to the game. I think, you know, you can look at that and what it must have been like for a 21-year-old Ronaldo coming into that game against France, the pressure in the in the days before, whether it was virus, whatever. I mean, I know all sorts of rumours went around afterwards about Nike. Edgemundo certainly talked about the power of Nike, the power of the contract that they had, which gave them all sorts of crazy rights with the sellers out in terms of team selection in friendlies, that kind of thing. But uh, and even discussions that maybe FIFA had lent on Brazil to throw the game. But in terms of Ronaldo's illness, he clearly wasn't recovered for the game and from Brazil's point of view that was a, a, a tragedy sadly from his point of view as well it kind of marks the moment where he stopped being famous for his goals and all his magical play and started being famous for his medical issues yeah perhaps I think it is a uh, before and after moment um, we're still yet to get to the kind of two defining knee injuries I would say um, but certainly at the beginning of, of his second season in Inter, it's clear that he's kind of out of sorts, um, really. And uh, to be honest, I don't think he was he was particularly helped by by the club he was at. You know, I think he had all the kind of support father figure in Moratti, but it was a unstable club. Um, you know, in terms of going through lots and lots of different managers. Mm. How Inter, 
Come on now. I find that hard to believe. How does that help someone uh, fulfill their potential? Or, or uh, And, you know, he's also playing in a, in a league where it was very, very physical, where you would get double, triple marks. They'd kick you out of the game. You'd come up against people like Paolo Montero. So if you're, if you're out of sorts in any way, it's, it's, it's not like, I think, suppose people have this impression of Serie A today, you know, where you can, you can get off the bus and you've already scored three goals if you're a striker. You know, it's, it was very difficult to, I, suppose, I would say, reprendesi or something like that, you know. Mm. So we'll come to that. It didn't start well uh, that season. By November, they'd fired the avuncular figure of uh, Gigi Smoni, the, the manager, uh, on, on the, the day. On, on the day, he was proclaimed coach of the year and Magnificent. just after having beaten Salernitana 2-1. <laughs> yep. So he got his marching orders. Inter ended up going through four different coaches that year. Simone, first of all, then uh, Michele Lucescu, then Luigi Castellini, before there's an interesting little cameo at the end of the season from... Roy Hodgson, the second England manager of, of Ronaldo's career, intriguingly. Roy had four games at the end of that 98-99 season, won two and lost two, but one of the wins was that incredible 5-4 away at Roma. You know, I don't think Roy Hodgson, certainly, I mean, he looks at his Palace team, second from bottom in XG at the Premier League at the moment. And, you know, he, he recalls having in the same same eleven Baggio, Ronaldo, Bam Bam Zamorano and that Pirlo. sort of thing. Pirlo. Um, yeah, that was that was quite something. But I think this was also the season of another one of those iconic Ronaldo games, the kind of dancing on ice, you know, in Spartak in Moscow. Or was that the yes. season before? Which is just one of the great... Uh, one of the great spectacles, A, because I mean, there's some great photos of Inter players doing a walk around in Red Square beforehand, and you've got Ronaldo with a big Russian hat and that sort of thing. And then just the state of the pitch. I don't think I've ever seen a pitch look as bad as the one that they played on it um, at Spartak that, that day. With all due respect, he must never have looked more like a beaver than he did that day with that uh, fur hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, true. <laughs> mm. I think the goal is one of his most memorable um, for the Nerazzurri because, again, you have this kind of Ronaldo sort of picking up the ball, turning, running at the defence, getting the ball back, and he pushes it past two defenders. And then this is the other thing that's great about Ronaldo is, is he's ambidextrous. It's just, you know, right, left, doesn't matter. He's able to take it, take it around the keeper with his right, finish with his left or vice versa. And this kind of perfectly showcases. And uh, even Bruno Pizzul, who's seen a lot mm. over his career as, as, as Rise commentator, gets very excited. Ronaldo in possession of palla. Ronaldo, la da Zamorano. Ancora Ronaldo, grande percussione Ronaldo. Gol straordinario di Ronaldo. Uh, taking it round the keeper is very much Ronaldo's trademark move. I've seen the figure, I haven't checked this, that 17% of all his Nerazzurri goals were scored by mostly putting the keeper on his bum. Interesting. Well, there's, there's an amazing um, it's an amazing goal. I think he scores against, it can't be Chievo. Maybe it is Chievo when they just come up with Lupatelli. Um, Lupatelli famous for wearing which number on the back of his shirt? Was it... Didn't he wear number ten as a goalkeeper? I mean, that that's 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 brilliant. But anyway, he he comes out to meet Ronaldo, um, and is is clearly just watching Ronaldo, and doesn't watch the ball. 
<laughs> and the ball, by, by the time he, he kind of he, he kind of thinks, oh, where's the ball? The ball's already gone past him and he's miles out of his goal. And that happened time and time again. Even in that, I think that Roma Roma game, you have Concel, the Austrian goalkeeper. Hmm. He's come scre- screaming off his line and he just, he makes goalkeepers look so silly um, for trying to anticipate him time and time again. Amazing. Ronaldo that season was already having issues with fitness. He only played about half the games in the league. Still managed 14 goals. Still managed to party, party a lot with Christian Vieri. I can imagine him in, you know, sort of uh, Hollywood, what the uh, the nightclub near Porto Garibaldi with with mm. uh, with Marcotti popping bottles, you know, sort of that sort of thing. So Yeah, except it's not called Hollywood, it's called Hollywood. Hollywood. Or actually it's called it's actually called Lollywood, the Hollywood. <laughs> the Hollywood. Yeah. Inter, perhaps not uncoincidentally, uh, lost eight of their final 14 games that season and finished eighth, eighth gab. Yeah, and I think it was that season where Inter, you know, we always talk about what a stable club is and how well thought out they are. They, that's when they decided, isn't that when they decided to basically sack Beppe Bergomi, you know, the club legend whose main crime was to have won a World Cup and, you know, just growing a mustache when he was 18. Yeah. yeah. And they um, they stripped him of the captaincy and they had this brilliant idea. I think it was it was that season to start of next season to, hey, let's give the captaincy to Ronaldo because he's a symbol. Which would have been fine, obviously, obviously but they didn't take into account that this was a... No, everybody liked Ronaldo. Nobody was going to begrudge him, but he clearly wasn't captain material. And this is one of those things that became irrelevant because, as we'll soon hear, he didn't play very much after that. Mm. But but I just think it just, again, speaks volumes about sort of Inter's inability to just be normal and make basic normal decisions like a normal person would play the percentages. Also, it wasn't necessarily a popular decision either. I mean, I think Diego Simeone ends up getting sold to Lazio and he goes and wins the league with them because him and some of the other Argentines weren't particularly happy with the sort of privileges that the the Brazilians and, and Ronaldo got. So, you know, if there was Christmas holidays, you know, they would all come back to Apiano Gentile, start training. Ronaldo still wasn't there, wouldn't be back for a couple of days. They'd, they'd turn on the TV, they'd see he's on the beach in Rio and he, he would come back and basically, you know, that was all fine. Moratti didn't even bat an eyelid. It was, it was perfectly cool. So, um, yeah, him becoming him becoming captain was a was a curious choice, and I think when I mean this is a little bit on in the future, but when he he comes back from injury and he, he doesn't get the captain's armband back, that's a problem. <laughs> mm. So eighth anyway that year. The following season was even worse. Ninety nine two thousand. Marcello Lippi is in. Pepperoncino is out at the dinner table. Inter had also added. Uh, Christian Vieri for 49 million euros, which is another world record, as Moratti chases that elusive, the chimera. But they kind of did what they, they, they've done now, didn't they? they? They tried to get all Juve. You know, they, they, they appoint mm. Lippi and then they bring in his, his soldatini, you know, his soldiers from Turin. So uh, Jugovic, Peruzzi. doesn't go quite as well as, as how things are going for Antonio Conte and his inter side at the moment. And also with, with Christian Vieri, we remember, you know, James told us... Uh, uh, told us earlier about how when they took the when they gave him the captain's armband, the Argentines weren't happy, and uh, uh, and Diego Simeone complained about it. Well, very very cleverly, what did they also do to get Christian Vieri? Because obviously he's very expensive. Um, 
they made Diego Simeone part of the deal. And Diego Simeone went the other way to, to Lazio. And that's how you solve the problem. Diego Simeone is complaining and, hey, look, let's kick him out. And guess what? Simeone wins the league and, and the partying gets harder. <laughs> so Vieri and Ronaldo, according to Ronaldo, would have been the perfect combination for him. But they don't get to play together very much, at least on the field. Uh, because on the 21st of November 1999, during a City A match against Lecce, we get one of the iconic moments, really, of that decade. Ronaldo's knee buckling and he limps off the field. And, and this is where it all begins. Five months he's out. He returns April the 12th in a Coppa Italia game against Lazio. Gab, do you remember this? I remember this very well. Um, it's one of those. It's one of those dates. Um, you know, like no doubt May fifth, which we'll which we'll needlessly mention again. Um, that is seared in, in the minds of, of many people, uh, many Inter followers. Um, he comes back. He's playing in the uh, Coppa Italia. And yeah, he lasts six minutes and he crumbles to the ground and kind of rolls over to his rolls over on it, on his back, holding his knee. And and I mean. To give you some dimension of this, the following day, back then I, I had to, to moonlight and cover some, some Formula One, um, I went to the unveiling of whichever Formula One team, whether, I honestly, I don't, I've, I've, I've erased all that Formula One knowledge from my mind, but I remember who Michael Schumacher was. I don't recall who he was with, but... There'll be Benetton or Ferrari, that'll be there. Whoever he was with at the time, that is literally the first question that they ask them. Like, did you see what happened to Ronaldo last night? And he, he gives like a 10-minute answer to talk about how crushed he was. Was there any news? You know, he found out late at night. It upset him. He couldn't sleep. And, and it was funny because, you know, those things, you have the usual mix of, of sort of, you know, engine heads who are just obsessed with, like, uh, with the car and the engine and the valves or whatever the hell. And they're, like, disappointed that there's Michael Schumacher looking human and looking emotional and, and almost breaking down himself. Um, I, I'll, I'll never forget that when he's, you know, he's discussing Ronaldo. And I know yeah. we love the idea that all celebrities are all friends um, and all hang out together when the rest of us aren't looking. I'm not sure that was the case. I just think Michael Schumacher was just a legitimate football fan who was just struck by, by sort of the cruelty that happened to Ronaldo. And if, if I wanted to get all sort of talk out of my backside, I might also chuck in the fact that, you know, it maybe reminds you of your own mortality and how in the blink of an eye, all of a sudden you can lose everything, which I would assume a Formula One driver knows all too well. I remember, you know, whenever you go to Italy in summer, you know, sort of first days of August and those pre-season tournaments, you know, the triangular tournaments, Trofeo Bellasconi, Trofeo Moretti and all this sort of thing. They always do the like a Partita del Cuore or Partita della Pace or something as well. And Schumacher was always involved in it. He mm. would always play in those. And and I imagine I don't know if I'm right in this, but I'm pretty sure he will have played with, yeah, with that Ronaldo. Makes a lot of sense, actually. Everyone had been waiting five months to see Ronaldo come back. He was the greatest player in the world and and to see him come back and six minutes, that's all he lasted. The first time he tried that that left-right move, the knee just, in the words of his trainer, just exploded. Also, James, I mean, for it to come against Lazio um, after the UEFA Cup final in 98, 
uh, for him to be running at their defence and attempting the stepovers that he did to score that goal in that 3-0 win, I think that made it, I mean, it was pretty traumatic regardless of what game it was to see how he went down. There was no challenge on him. Um, and he just went down like he'd been shot by a sniper in, in, the, in, the, in the Stadio Olimpico. Um, and the tears, uh, it was really, really emotional to, 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 to see what he was, he was going through. So at the time, there was a lot of there was a lot of thinking afterwards about why it was that that Ronaldo's body was behaving this way, and certainly the view from Brazil and within the, even the Celestial's medical team was that this was Inter's fault. That essentially, the training at Apiano Gentili had bulked him up to the point where his frame couldn't support the weight, and that's why the joints were collapsing. This was a pretty popular view at the time. Um, I love. We're not doctors, and this was a long time ago. But you are actually gay. Thank you, but, <laughs> but 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 we we had these situations where, and obviously it started a few years earlier when all those players at Juventus certainly started getting very very muscular, and Christian Vieri, who's another guy who would suffer a million injuries, there was a prevailing view that, you know, nobody that big and heavy should move that fast and that's why he got injured and and this was also what applied to Ronaldo I I don't know having watched you know LeBron James play and LeBron James who's even bigger and heavier um and quicker I'm sure it's not that per se but obviously there's a certain way you can bulk up and gain muscle um and do it and do it safely and and evidently load management load management gap Evidently, exactly. Evidently, that didn't happen with these two. Well, that April evening, I think Schumacher and the rest of us all wondered if we would ever see Ronaldo play again. As it turned out, there was plenty still to come. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So Ronaldo, injured in April 2000, misses all of the 2000-2001 season, the one with Hakan Sukur and Robbie Keane up front for Inter, Lippi getting fired in October, the burning scooter at San Siro, the 6-0 defeat in the derby. He misses... Adrian Mutu, don't forget Adrian Mutu. Also Adrian Mutu. Young Pandev. (laughs) Right. So he misses all of that. He also misses most of the next campaign, 2001-2002, although he is back early on and making sporadic appearances he takes Gab I think you were saying 17 months to come back and start scoring again yeah late September in, in Transylvania against Brasov but that's when he comes back to the pitch it took him even longer to return to scoring again and it, it well on the pitch uh, I mean into <laughs> during <laughs> into during this period um, you know whilst sort of uh, Vieri and Ronaldo were recuperating in uh, in Hollywood uh, the, the the nightclub they were they're having to start Mohamed Kalon and and uh, Nikola Ventola up front mm. and and by the time these guys get actually fit again and, and ready to contribute that I think they were still they were they were top. Of the table, and, it, and Hector Cooper had obviously got Valencia to back-to-back Champions League finals. Right, El, uh, El hombre vertical um, had been doing that with Calon and Ventil up front. Okay, Madness. James, I, I cannot believe that you would mention before you got so excited about Lupatelli's uh, unconventional shirt number. Do you want? Do you want to tell us what shirt Mohamed Calon 
center yeah. forward Mohamed Kalonwar. Th- this is why Marco Verratti wears the number four, isn't it? Because uh, Kalon wore it. So and Kalon's it number two, actually. Oh, number two, Kalon that's it. There. More, yes. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> By the end of that campaign, as you say, James, Inter are top of the table. And good Lord, they're finally heading for that title at last. Ronaldo is now fit again. By April, he's scoring. He appears in four straight games, the final four of the season, uh, with the World Cup around the corner. His fitness, I think, by this point was pretty key to him and his plans for the summer. He scores four goals as well in those four games, but crucially not in the final one of that season, which saw Inter, and we've told this tale before, one point clear at start of play, visiting Lazio, roared on by both sets of fans, but still managing to lose 4-2. That's a story we've covered elsewhere. Let's just, yeah, if we can, move on. stop for a second and picture Ronaldo on the bench that day. The tears streaming down his cheeks, Gab. It was over. Yeah, and, you know, with all the joking and stuff, this is the, the, the thing about Ronaldo, and people have talked about the partying, and, and, and James talked about his brioche and cappuccino at training. But ultimately, on the pitch, he really cared, and those tears were were very genuine. You know, coming off in a game like that, and and having Mohamed Kalon come on for you, the aforementioned striker, where's number two, and then you know seeing the title slip away, I think it really hurt him. And and part of the thing with Ronaldo is that he's just generally a very likable guy. I know Simeone for a while felt differently, but you know it's hard it's hard to dislike him and. I often wonder about sort of the, the Messi-Cristiano rivalry and like, oh, well, what if Ronaldo had had like an anti-Ronaldo out there and whatever, you know, would would people dislike him the way people take pot shots at the other Ronaldo? And and, and, and I don't know is the answer, but, but certainly there was so much compassion and so much empathy for what he'd been to. Um, although that was put into question in August of 2002, as I'm sure we'll get to. Mm. It's foreshadowing there. Well, let's talk about that because that turned out to be his final game for Inter. The World Cup comes around and the big Ronaldo redemption in in Brazil. And against that backdrop, you have his decision to leave the Nerazzurri. He said, I never wanted to leave the club. He felt it was his home. And, well, this is his quote, I never had to go to a president and ask for a coach's head. It's not right and it's not in my values. But we got to a point where I couldn't handle Hector Cooper anymore. He wasn't doing well with me. So he went to Moratti and he expected Moratti to say, fine, I'll find another manager. After all, that's what Inter did. However, Moratti uh, didn't take that decision and instead Ronaldo decided to leave. I can't believe this is the one time, well, it's maybe not the one time, but the time that Moratti decides to stand by a coach over one of his darling players is just unbelievable. Did he maybe think that Ronaldo was done, a, 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 you know, a, a former great? Didn't stop him keeping Rakoba around for... <laughs> this is an interside who'd been through all of that with Kanu being out for so long. Uh, who'd stood by Ronaldo through all of this, maybe didn't think he was going to come back to that level. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm asking, what was, the, what was the reason that Ronaldo left home? Well, I, you, just, you just gave us Inter's version of events. Hmm. You also mentioned Cano and Ronaldo in the same sentence, which I would just implore you not to do again. Um, look, this is part of my issue with Moratti. 
this is the story that Inter put out to justify the fact that on in the, the final hours of the transfer window, he joined Real Madrid for 45 million euros. The fact that he gave the club an ultimatum and for the first time ever, Moratti decided to stick with the coach. Part of my issue with Moratti is that, well, first of all, I don't believe the story. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody can be so dim and so limited in outlook over freaking Hector Cooper. Who he fired soon anyway after. Well, precisely. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, Hector Cooper, the guy, the ballroom dancing. Come on, man. Seriously. Punch you on the heart was your, as you were coming yes. out to play. That was his thing. Uh, look, um, yeah, when you come onto the pitch, he'd go and he'd, he'd punch you in the heart. Okay, whatever. Uh, and yeah, he went on to great things afterwards, by the way, didn't he? But, one, but I think, com- one, one AFCON with Egypt, Gabby. Come on. <laughs> but I think beyond that, what, what's, what struck me about Monati is if you're making up the story to justify what you said, Ronaldo, you still look stupid, right? So if the story's not true, if the story more accurately, because the way it was told to me, obviously Real Madrid made a big show. This was the Galactico era. They got they, they got Figo, they got Zidane, they wanted Ronaldo. And this went on all summer. And remember they had sold their training ground. There's a line that, well, you know, it's not enough to sell your training ground. You're going to have to sell the Bernabeu if you want Ronaldo because we're going to make you pay $100 million, blah, 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 and all the stupid bluster. And in the end, you cave. To me, I think there is either financial issues behind it. Maybe, you know, his brother, who, of course, controls the purse strings there, said, okay, Massimo, enough, you know, chill out. Um, You got to sell here, which is possible. It's happened before, right? You know, he says, you play with a toy for a while, and then Big Brother comes and takes the toy away. Um, or, 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 Or there's something else. I cannot believe that you would realistically, when the guy's finally proven his fitness, go, and choose freaking Hector Cooper uh, over him. Also, and James, you said, did he think that he could still do it anymore? I mean, this is August 2002. He's just won the World Cup, top no, score no. at the World Cup. Absolutely. I was talking and, about and he's got, back he's got in a, April. What happens right. afterwards makes Inter look very, very silly indeed. I think also the dynamic of what happened on, on that last day. Um, I, was, I, I covered that, that transfer at the time. Inter were talking to Ronaldo about him staying throughout the day. And it got to the point where they faxed over uh, a term sheet, or they wanted to fax over a term sheet. Um, and Ronaldo was in his was in his uh, apartment in in Milan with his nephew and with uh, Rodrigo Paiva, his spokesman stroke friend. And I don't know if it was Inter who sent it over, or it was Branchini who sent it over, or, or somebody else. But for whatever reason, the fax would never go through. Would never go through. And it turns out that it's because. The nephew was was online back in those days. You had this stupid thing called dial-up services, and while <laughs> he had more than one phone in his house, and um, he's on M- MSN Messenger. Boom. Yeah, no, they're calling him on the phone and saying, like, uh, on, a, on a cell, and saying, "Oh, look, you know, yeah, we'll send it through now." And then they got cold feet and said, "Well, he's bluffing. He's just waiting for midnight for the transfer window to close. It's not going to happen." I think they have a very different view. Are you saying that a super NES effectively? was behind Ronaldo leaving Inter for Real Madrid. You know what? I do not know if he was playing games online. I don't believe that in uh, in, in, in 2002 there was that mm. kind of bandwidth. Maybe he was just checking his uh, his, his email. Or his Yahoo. I, I don't, yeah. <laughs> or maybe he was, on, uh, he was on Mosaic searching the web for sushi <laughs> recipes. I don't know 
what I was doing. But but that was the argument that they were expecting sort of this counter offers, this term sheet, which they kept telling them, which they'd verbally agreed. Right. And it never came through. And then they said, no, this is never going to come through. He's just going to stall. Let's take Madrid's offer. And by the way, the other evidence on this is that Inter had accepted Madrid's offer, but it was conditional to Ronaldo accepting Madrid's terms. So right. he had Madrid's terms in front of him, but then Inter were like, no, no, you, you, we want you to stay. And look, here, here's here's a term sheet. Here's things we're going to work on. I, I don't know what happened, but this dragged on far longer than it should. And right. and again, and in the end, the reality is he just caved. Like like James said, he had just won the World Cup no, no, in 2002. But- and then all of a sudden, oh, no. Let me take Hector Cooper instead because he can dance a tango and he's got a nice house in Lake but Como. I think Come the, on, man. The decision must have been taken by Ronaldo before that, no? I mean, in his heart. Do you, it wouldn't be the weirdest thing in the world for him to go, you know what, I do need... After everything I've been through in the last four seasons at Inter, it started brilliantly and they've been great, but maybe it is time to move on. And this does look a pretty exciting project. I, I mean, he, 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 blamed, uh, he blamed Hector Cooper. Um, I mean, I think when he was at the World Cup in Brazil... A journalist from Corriere della Sera went over and interviewed him. And it was very interesting, the article that she wrote, because it, it almost felt like it was all the kind of points that he'd kind of hinted at. So, like, Hector Cooper just thought that Ronaldo was... He wasn't special. He was just he, he deserved the, treat, the same treatment as everybody else. Um, Cooper basically had a, a transfer meeting and said, yeah, I'm okay if you want to sell him. Go ahead, that's fine. Halftime of that, that game against Lazio on May 5th, apparently hairdryer treatment aimed at uh, at, uh, at Ronaldo. And then the other was that I think big Phil Scolari had been to Appiano Gentile to check on how uh, Ronaldo was getting on. And in this story, it kind of alleges that uh, Cooper was like, Meh, you know, he's all right. He's, he's not great. And uh, I think, you know, all those little things kind of built, built and built. Uh, you know, as you were saying at the top of this segment, I think Ronaldo... He would never ask for for the president to get rid of of a coach, unless you know he really felt, as he, it, it seems like he did in this case, mm. that uh, it was that relationship was beyond repair. And you know, I, I think Christian Vieri, yeah, he tells a story about him, Chino Ricoba, and someone else basically going to Morat and say, "Look, we'll take a wage cut." They apparently do this quite often, like when they wanted to sign Nesta. Uh, and they were like, we'll take a, a pay cut, just get the deal done. And then um, I think at 3.30 in the morning, he's partying in uh, Milano Maritima, and he gets a call from Moratti because Moratti knows he can get hold of Vieri at that time, uh, partly because <laughs> maybe he's having someone follow him. Um, and, <laughs> and basically says, look, uh, Ronaldo's sold. Uh, and they're just like incredulous. Like, it's like, how can you not sort this out? We've got the best player in the world. He would win the Ballon d'Or that year. How can mm. you ne- how can you not get this organised? Well, that summer he went off to the World Cup in South Korea and Japan, led Brazil to their record fifth World Cup title, received the Golden Boot as top scorer with eight goals, including two in the final against Germany. And then he joins Real and wins it all, has that iconic match at Old Trafford in the Champions League. Anyway, but that's all a story for Golazo, our entirely hypothetical sister podcast on this one we, we should also point out though yeah, yeah. That since you've got a bazillion sister podcast that by going there and scoring that hat trick at old trafford he also changed the history of the premier league and the, the life and history right. and times of one jose Mourinho, who right. of course could come back into the interconversation years later That's because so obviously true. without that roman abramovich never buys chelsea right mm. so 
Yeah. And you'll find that on a, on a special episode of Gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Goldski. Right. Goldski. For Serie A, though, I'm going to say that that summer of 2002 was the end of an era. It was kind of marked the end of Serie A's time as, you know, its golden age. I mean, to lose one beloved bald figure that summer was tough, but to see two depart was devastating. Channel 4 ended its Serie A coverage thing. <laughs> It might come back, Jimbo. Might come you back. never know. You never know. No, it's gone. It's gone. But yeah, what do you think? I mean, Ronaldo leaving. Which is that the kind of is that the chapter end on Il Campionato Più Bello del Mondo? That that kind of glorious nineties that extended a little bit. I suppose so. Although I mean, that was kind of a peak, wasn't it? Because um, you know, between ninety nine and two thousand and one, you had Lazio, Roma, and Juventus win the title. Um, and so to see the kind of balance of power momentarily kind of shift to the kind of uh, the Italian capital rather than just be between Milan and, and Turin was was quite something. And then I suppose 04, 06 is probably the beginning of the end, no? Because that's when that's when we get to that's when we get to Calciopoli. Yeah, I, I, I think I would tend to agree with that. I mean, obviously it's never just one day, but I think two thousand two though is a good metaphor because I think what you saw after that, even though obviously we saw, you know, Milan win two Champions League titles and and, and whatnot, I think it was also very. It marked it definitively marked the end of Serie A's economic dominance, which you know had already been had already been tested a little bit, but you still had a sense that you know, like Juventus sell Juventus sell Zidane and then they buy like Nedved and he wins the Ballon d'Or, you know. So like 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 there was always a sense that you know we, that they were still on top. But I think I, I think that is a good metaphor, and then obviously Calciopoli followed, and and everything else. Mm. And Ronaldo comes back in two thousand and seven, but then that was in, was part of uh, you know late era Galliani's collection of kind of waxworks of former great footballers. So I'm not sure how Ronaldo, much Ronaldinho, Ronaldo. He puts the two thousand team together at different stages. It's he, unbelievable. He comes in. I haven't yeah. got the figures here, but he comes in in February, I think, of two thousand and seven, and he does really, really well. He scores loads of goals. Like I think seven and fourteen or something. The next season, though, he he doesn't play at all, and then he he does his knee a, a final time while. I think jumping for but a the, header. The, and- the derby. I mean, you're right. He he joins at the the end of the January transfer window, and and within in ten days, but, he's got the derby against Inter. Mm. Um, and he's, but he's cup tied in the Champions League. Remember, Milan win the Champions League that year against Liverpool and Athens, yeah. and he, he can't play. Oh my word! He was part of that squad. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Um, but Moratti for that first derby, he paid. I think he, he paid, or the, the certainly the ultras in the in the Curva Nord paid for like I don't know twenty thousand whistles, so that every time he every time Ronaldo touched the ball, uh, they would blow these whistles, and you hear this deafening noise. This is also the game uh, where Zlatan's looking across from, him. and mm. Ronaldo doesn't, doesn't disappoint. He scores. Ronaldo sinistro. He scores against Julio Cesar. Julio Cesar, who's since married, what, Ronaldo's girlfriend from right, the Susanna kind of late Verna. 90s, Susanna Verna. But Inter come back in that game, and you see Moratti doing the ombrello gesture at, uh, at Ronaldo at the end of the game. Um, so, yeah. Sad. Great, great. Uh, sad, but, you know, great entertainment. 
What what a career for somebody who could have been a great. He was pretty great. Three FIFA World Player of the Year awards, a brace of Ballon d'Ors, over 400 career goals. He won the World Cup. He scored 15 World Cup goals. He won two Copa Americas, top scorer in that as well. He won a UEFA Cup. He got 62 goals in 98 games with Brazil. He played for both Barcelona and Real Madrid and Inter and Milan, and not even Clarence Seidoff managed that. Uh, just extraordinary. He seems to be super happy now, uh, now that he kind of owns part of Real Valladolid in Spain. Uh, he's a little bigger than before, and he looks very happy with life, which is nice because he made a lot of people very happy through his career. What's your What's your abiding memory of uh, Ronaldo? What's the thing you would take away, especially from the six years with Inter? Well, if we ignore the, the, the Compostela goal, um, which is maybe his greatest goal, the, for me, the one, the one that he scored against Marchegiani uh, would, be, would be up there. But I think more than a goal, it's the grin. It's, it's, it's the, especially when he was younger, you know, he kind of was like the original man-child because he just looked like a big kid and the teeth and, 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 and whatever. And, and you saw him do things which nobody had ever done before on the, on the pitch, or at least I'd never seen anybody uh, do on the pitch. Uh, maybe that nobody's ever really done since. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to go and look out for if you want to see some Ronaldo goals. I mean, Gab mentioned the, the, the one against Lazio in, in 98, but also there's a goal which is one of the greatest goals never scored. It would have been would have been amazing where he he dribbles through the Bologna defence and then takes on the goal and he just kind of puts the shot just wide. He beats about six or seven people. Um, there's another one of Piacenza in the cup, um, which is similar-ish to the Compostello goal. But I, I just remember the marketing around Ronaldo as well. Uh, you know His boots, which I still think is the, the best pair of Nike boots that have ever been made, the R9s. Um, and then that, uh, you know, it's maybe quite timely, but you think of Pirelli's sponsorship of, of Inter um, and how long it's been going. I always remember that, um, that poster of him as Corcovado, you know, the Christ the Redeemer. Um, yes. With, with the kind of tyres as his feet. Um, which again kind of evoked the speed of Ronaldo, but also just like he had everything at his feet, that he was looking over everything, he was on top. Also, he was part and indeed the central figure in perhaps the most charming element of the greatest football advert of all time. And indeed, let's leave uh, our look at Ronaldo with Oba Oba. Many thanks to James Horncastle and Gabriele Marcosi. We'll return with more Galazzo soon. Listener, thank you for being with us for this one. And from all of us here, it's a Rivadurci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. By the way, the the greatest advert of all time all right. is the Cantona Arvois one. Oh, the, in the, uh, yeah, no, that, yeah. No. The, the one cage, where, the cage in, uh, in yeah. Aeor is great as well, no? With David's. Yeah. No, it's good Au Revoir, but for me, the airport was just... Hey, whatever. All these, like, in the other one, Maldini's winning the ball off a demon, okay? Yeah. They're playing against demons and they defend them. And you talk about a bunch of people 
walking around in an <laughs> okay. airport and right. you say, oh, it's the same. Like, no, that's not cool. <laughs> the Athletic.